Hey there, welcome back to another exciting episode on Karishma Connect. This episode is very special because when I started Karishma Connect, these are the kind of stories I wanted to put out there. These are the kind of insights I wanted to share. Thanks to Faranaz and thanks to Noshin for arranging it. Thanks to Faranaz who is an award-winning climate change strategist, a head of sustainability and ESG at a leading consultancy firm in Dubai and a wide range of accolades to her name. This interview is all about genuinity, humbleness and a lot of insightful information from across her journey which includes having been behind some of the topmost structures that you see well across your Sheikh Zayed Road, uh, some of them being Museum of the Future. And it's an amazing journey that she shares. She deep dives into things that we may not know about the buildings that we see. There's so much more to them. Uh, than what we perceive them to be and that's exactly why I have had such an amazing time talking to her that I haven't been able to edit this episode. Um, it, it's as it is because it's that that great and it may be long but it's definitely worth it and for more comfortable conversations like these without the barrier of keeping it short for attention spans, <laughs> I'm going to be launching Karishma Connect across audio platforms moving forward, apart from the one-off video interviews that we have. And hopefully that will help our listeners listen better and enjoy the podcast better. Looking forward to sharing the next one. Until then, Karishma Connect and stay tuned for this one this evening. Lots of love. To begin with, tell me, and that's, just the way I start, just dive into your journey so far. How are you where you are currently? I'm trained as a building services engineer with mechanical, electrical and public health. I grew up in Boston. I'll tell you what happened. My father was a civil engineer who worked on one of the world's biggest dams and embankments. And he used to go to Netherlands to get trained because he was one of those engineers who did land reclamation and building those bridges and infrastructures. Right. And many of the big dams and embankments built under the World Bank funding in India, Bangladesh, Nepal, he was one of those project leaders. So I used to travel with him a lot. Right. Now, what happened is that uh, we were living in a villa and the villa next door was getting demolished. I always wanted to be an architect because we, I always saw big architects and engineers coming and my father drawing on these big boards and all that. So I always had this fascination and I always draw floor plans and all that and wanted to be an architect. But I still remember the next door house started being demolished and I watched the whole demolition from the window. It was the most fascinating thing I've ever seen. Mm. And then they did the hole in the ground to dig the underground and um and then it became more of a how should i say it then the construction started it took them two years to build it and i watched it from my window yeah. every day after school before school at night you know yeah. and that fast because it's the first time for a seven-year-old child to watch the whole construction process and i remember the supervisors even knew me they gave me a little yellow hat because they knew I would stand on top of the window and watch it. Right. I, had, I was short, so I had to stand up. So that was my first introduction. I always wanted to be an architect. Mm. When I went to undergraduate, we, I went to Wentworth Institute of Technology in Boston. We had a two-year architecture engineering program where you, are study, you study everything, architecture engineering, everything. Mm. After two years, there's a process of... Um, submitting a portfolio and you decide whether you want to go for architecture or engineering. So after two years, I decided I'm going to go for architecture and engineering both because I like design and I want to make design come in reality and do the technical stuff. 
So I applied for both and my professor suggested I first go for engineering and then do the architecture. Did so I you? went for, I pardon me? I have a question there. Did that help yes. you? Yes. To get both yes. sides of the story, how did that help you? Yes, it really helped me because uh, architects are the visionaries. Previously, architects were designed in a different way. Corbusier, Lee Corbusier, Louis Kahn, they were very good engineers and they are very good architects. We only know them for their architecture, but they understood structures and engineering very well. What happened in the modern education system is that architectures are told not to talk about structures and design that much. They do have courses, but they're told not to talk about it. The other biggest challenge in the education system is they're not taught how to do business cases and business plans. Yeah. In real life, architects and engineers have to do business cases and business plans. Right. So yeah. that engineering education combined with business education really helped me a lot mm -hmm. because as soon as you graduate, you're not doing design and visioning work, you know? Mm -hmm. You might be doing some mood boards, but you really need to understand how the engineering comes together, how the mechanical system comes together to make your architecture amazing. Mm -hmm. So architects need really good understanding of structures and MEP systems. Mm -hmm. And also they really need to understand the business case and the business side of um, uh, other disciplines in order to make the architecture real. Right. Okay. Right. So for me, what I did is I went for the engineering. Um, but while I was working for doing the engineering, I was working for an architecture firm. So mm -hmm. I always had that sketching and visibility and visioning. Mm -hmm. My key strength is how to first visioning with architects a very uh, conceptual idea. And then my key strength is to take that conceptual idea and convert it into a very engineering um, method implementation plan. Mm -hmm. And having strength of both really, really helped me. Now, I've chosen not to do architecture and do engineering because I'm more an evidence-based person, but I've been working with architects for the last 20 years, um, doing the ideation and the concepts and visions with them. And my ideation concepts and visions are always climate-based. Earth, water, wind, and fire, the four elements. I work with that, microclimate studies, urban environment. I do a lot of work with uh, microclimates. That means sunrise, sunset, temperature, people's movement of spaces, mm. hot, cold, because you know we are all heaters. Mm. Each one of us are heaters. Mm. And the way we wear our clothes and the temperatures we experience in our environment, that impacts our health and our experience of the outdoor comfort. So your outdoor comfort is different here in UAE to in Rome, to in Spain, to in Iceland, you know, right. because of the environment. But you have not changed. It's just that the environment has changed. So, yes, uh, a comprehensive education is very important. What I'm really finding is that when I'm hiring interns and all that, they, especially architecture interns, they come up with a lot of architectural knowledge. Um, their technical knowledge is not that strong. Mm -hmm. and this is something but some of them are really strong because they have made the people who are strong are the people who have made that extra attempt to learn more and do more and mm -hmm. was really curious but some people decided not to every person is different so it's fine I decided to take a job in Southeast Asia so I took a job for three years 
um, landed in Hong Kong and within landing, within seven days, they told me that the company is shutting down and nothing's going to happen. Oh. So I thought, okay, fine. Why don't I just stay here for a few, few months and see what happens and I can have a holiday and go back. Mm-hmm. That, um, so I started going networking with people and all that and I landed up meeting some really interesting people, engineers and architects. Mm-hmm. I ended up joining an, um, an architecture company to mm. publication to do cover publications for them okay you know just journals and all that because they were struggling with english oh. and they wanted someone to help with that i started working with them on design projects and i became one of the managing partners with them to oh. run this 20 people company and oh. we had projects in hong kong singapore vietnam nepal india bangladesh all these eight so i worked there for three years and i absolutely enjoyed it Mm. So then I became project manager and then engineering lead and all that. So I was heading up the engineering team and the contractors. And um, there was a gentleman who was originally there who Mm. hired me to do the articles, um, was doing architecture. And I learned so much. And that's where my passion on sustainability became stronger. I worked on a block of flats in Bangladesh where um, the women and children were struggling with lots of health issues. And after we renovated, rebuilt the whole block of flats with natural ventilation, I went back and uh, compared their medical bills. And they did not have to go, before they had to go to monthly basis to doctors and hospitals. Mm -hmm. And what we realized was that they were all cooking on uh, clay pots, Mm -hmm. but the properties were not ventilated. It was a multi-story apartment building. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's older part of um, the city so that became my passion for sustainability and then I realized that I need a proper knowledge so I went and did my master's but when I did my master's I've been already working for 10 years you I know so, yes yeah. and then the master after I finished my master's my uh, the company I worked for in America asked me when are you coming back and I said I will come back uh, in six months time yeah. and then my journey in UK began, I got offered a job, very interesting job, energy modeling. And I thought I just learned energy modeling. What do I do for this for six months? And then I go back. And I ended up doing the energy modeling for the first net zero energy building in UK, which was in, oh. I started in 2008. We finished in 2014, 2012, 14. Took a long time because that time nobody knew about all these things. Yeah. I didn't even know what net zero was. I had to Google it, you know. I sat there in a meeting and everybody is talking about net zero, net carbon. I said, what is this thing? We never were taught about these things. Even I did my master's in architectural association, which is one of the oldest universities in the world. Uh, It's that old. It's uh, one of those old ones. And this word never existed. hmm. So I learned a lot in UK. Eight years I worked in UK, Copenhagen, and I moved around. Um, um, My company got bought by a bigger company. And that knowledge and experience was amazing. I learned so much, especially living and working in Copenhagen. It's a different world. Yes, yes. And so from engineering, I moved into more city-level master planning, health and well-being, connecting energy with well-being of people for cities and all that. Because I have a really interest in that. How do you connect these very technical, dry conversation about energy and water and waste with people's health and well-being and quality of life? Mm -hmm. And I'm really interested on how children's uh, well-being and how how do they dream and grow up you know in these cities and then after eight years of that I got offered a role by a British company in Dubai to 
commonly the sustainability. So I thought, you know, I did my UK stuff. I worked in Southeast Asia, I worked in America. Middle East is somewhere I never thought. And everybody said, it's your woman and sustainability doesn't exist. So please don't go there. I thought because people are saying no and they're discouraging, maybe I should go and try it out. <laughs> so I came to Middle East for one year. <laughs> and that one year became now seven and a half, eight years. Yes. Museum of the Future was the first bid I submitted in my first month in job. Uh, my director was on holiday and that was my first bid. I didn't know anything about any of this. But when I read through the brief from Dubai Future Foundation, at that time it was not formed yet. I felt that this is gonna be something big. The mm -hmm. way they put the scope together, Sheikh Mohammed's office, I didn't know Sheikh Mohammed, I didn't know anybody, but I read it and I knew this is gonna be something big. I had felt it, you know? Mm -hmm. And Museum of the Future, uh, it's like my baby. It's, it's my, my own children. My child is three years old. Museum of the Future is eight years old baby for me, you know? Mm -hmm. And then the expo bid came. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting in New York and drawing ideas in napkins because we were all in a lunch yeah. to meet the Grimshaws. And we were still discussing whether we should go for this competition or not. And I remember talking about the idea of the gaff tree and how gaff trees works because that time I've been here for a year and whole sustainability pavilion is a concept of gaff tree. Yeah. I still have the sketch on the napkin. Okay. So this is my journey became and now Alhamdulillah I've worked on Museum of the Future, Sustainability Pavilion, Itihad Housing, which is in Mazdar, BIA headquarters. So, and then, um, a year and a half ago, uh, during pandemic 2019, um, everybody, everything was in lockdown. Yeah. I had a cough and I went to office on 5th of March and they said, you have a cough. It may be good for you to go home and work because there's something called Corona. Mm. Oh my God, 5th of March was the last day I went to office and then everything went on shutdown yeah. Yeah. and we all started working from home. I remember May or June time, I started connecting with my university professors from undergraduate. Right. And I really felt like talking to my professor who inspired me the most in sustainability because I realized I have not spoken to him for 17 years. Mm -hmm. So I dropped him a line in LinkedIn. I didn't know whether he was gonna be in LinkedIn because he's in his 70s, 80s now. Mm -hmm. And he did respond back with his phone number. So I called him and we had a longest chat. Um, he works for a different advisory board now in America and we had one hour chat. And then the next day he emailed me saying, listen, I have a friend who's gonna do some masters. He was supposed to go to Syria, but during pandemic, he can't. Why don't you have a chat with him and see if you can help him with his thesis? And I said, okay, fine. So this guy messages me. I said, okay, fine, I will have a chat. We have a chat in Zoom, I didn't turn my camera on because I was you know, still getting new of this. Yeah, yeah. And I thought this was like a 40 year old person who wants to do masters in London School of Economics and looking, he started his masters. Mm -hmm. He was looking for a thesis topic. So I brainstormed a few ideas, but we never turned the camera on, okay? We just spoke. And he was got really interested in sustainability. And I was at that time I was working on net zero projects in the region. Um, so we started talking and we decided I'm going to be his thesis sponsor and mm -hmm. we are going to work on his thesis focusing on net zero cities. And I said, okay, fine. 
<clears throat> at the end of nine months, we had 10,000 words written and his thesis was only 5,000 words. Okay. So he submitted his thesis. By this time, within a few months when I signed everything with him, I realized he's a 60-year-old guy oh my who worked in management okay. consultancy all his life. All he did was innovation and his father was an architect, mother was an urban planner. And he had a full-fledged career. His son is a musician and his daughter is a doctor. And I was like, and you want, and he's like, yeah, I want to do, uh, I started this master's because I want to shift and I want to do something meaningful. Yeah. And I, I joked with him, I said, oh, you made so much money now and now you want to do something meaningful. So with him, this partnership started, Langdon Morris, and which became the book. Um, net zero city book yes. it was not planned it was nothing thing I had a six-month-old baby but with him and me it was a very good thinking partnership because I'm an engineer I want everything to be engineered project managed and all that yeah. he's a management consultant he doesn't know anything about engineering but he knew the processes to make things happen he knows how to make innovation makes reality and it's fantastic we ended up writing this book and uh, the week it's going to get published, I plan to go for Umrah. It was my first time and I planned it a long time ago. I didn't realize it's the week. And it was so hard to speak to him on 28th or 30th of November because I knew I'm going to be away for Umrah for seven days. Yeah. And, and Langdon and me discussed and he said, I'm going to publish it in Amazon on 1st of December. I said, amazing. I'm going to be offline. And I joked with him, I said, most probably the day when you're going to hit the button, I'm going to be circumambulating and praying. Mm. It was so hard because this book became another baby and leaving my yeah. baby for the final test and going, going completely offline. It. it was so hard, but I knew that it was meant to be. So I did that and I went for Umrah for seven days. I came back and the book got published and it became and then suddenly it started becoming this huge thing. Yeah. But mind my word, it's exactly happened when he hit the button in Amazon to publish it in Amazon. I was circumambulating, you know, the Kaaba. Oh, wow. So this is oh, my story. Um, yeah, this is my story. So I'm really passionate about cities and the meaning of climate change for people. Um, I think my key objective for today's podcast is to talk about um, Climate change for the last 50 years have been for scientists to sort out. It was not a problem for us, normal human beings, okay? But if you have noticed the heat waves, and one hour ago, the US government has, um, California government has uh, announced a state of emergency because one of the biggest, largest forests has now burning. I was in Rome two weeks ago, and I know how hot it got. So for the last 10, 15 years, I think the world has realized that climate change is a making of us and we have to do something effectively. And it's not just the governments or the climate scientists. Everybody has to take a role. So I think today's my intention of the podcast is to make it simplified for people to talk about action plans that people can take, any decisions that we take has an impact, and also encourage the younger generation to come and join this uh, science, this engineering, to become the future leaders to drive this movement, because we have next 30 years waiting for climate change is too, too, too long. 
you know, we're all going to be burnt by that time. The world will survive, but we might not, you know, and that's one of the title of a talk that I'm doing. It says the earth will survive, but we may not, because that's the science is saying that the earth will go on, everything's going to get destroyed. Um, and the impact of health and well-being, especially for children, is really bad. But what I found is that sometimes people don't understand why it impacts us as a city. Mm. Um, why? And I'll tell you now, and then when I tell, I will say, but the idea is that because for the last 50 years, we have built a lot of factories and these factories emit a lot of gases on the atmosphere. Yeah. So there's something called a biosphere, which is the layer above the clouds. And usually normally what happens is when sea and land gets heated up, hot air rises up. So the hot air would rise up and go above our biosphere, which is a layer above our clouds and vanish to the galaxy. Yeah. What happened in the last 50 years is that all the gases that we are emitting has created a layer above the clouds in the biosphere that doesn't allow the hot air to rise up and it's building up. And that's why there's an issue with climate change because the hot, the hot air is rising up, but it's waiting there. It, it doesn't have a hole to get out of. Yeah, okay? yeah. And all the latest climate scientists are now uh, showing images in Twitter is that how the gases that we have emitted in the last 15 years is actually closing our biosphere so that's why climate change is an issue because the earth is not able to breathe in and out which is basics in yoga right yes 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 so i don't think we think of it that way yeah. i think we Maybe. want to make money and have a normal life and buy our diamonds and why is climate an issue for me it doesn't matter i will die in 20 years time and I have made so much money and my children is going to be happy but money will not buy us buy, money will buy us a house and a palace it will not buy us health and well-being you know and that's the impact that we are facing that even with so the whole idea of COP26 COP27 and COP28 is to for all the countries to come with a commitment to reduce these uh, harmful gases to be emitted in our atmosphere that's the first thing we have to do and second thing we need to figure out how can we design cities to make our cities more cooler so the cities are more livable and all the things that we are doing are not emitting these harmful gases in the biosphere that's the key thing in climate change the second thing we have to do is all the gases that we have already emitted that sits above our biosphere how can we make holes you know to be yeah. said in, so those gas can release up yeah this yeah. is the most simplest way of explaining yeah. the hard science <laughs> this was my question actually that if you had to explain it to a five-year-old how would you break it yes. down yes and one of the um, i love that question actually because when i do presentations i always ask myself if i was presenting to a seven-year-old how would i explain it because it's very hard for a businessman or a grocery shop owner or a biker to understand why the hell climate change has anything to do with cities heating up. Yeah. And how does my life even impact this? Isn't it scientists' jobs? Yeah. Yeah. But what we're realizing is that the decisions we're making from buying food to what, what, um, what transportation we're using, where we're buying house, how, how many, it, it's, it's becoming a global responsibility now. 
True. Which people True. never thought about it this way, maybe 15 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And there's so much more, like that entire you sharing your journey. It's there's so much more to just having a building, first of all, because when you told me about the process that went through before you actually start. Yeah. So there's so much more to the building that we see, you know, this yes. groundwork, wherein you're saying it actually has the power to, uh, you know, improve the situation of women in a particular place, improve climate in a particular And we all we see is actually just that building. I know because I'm the daughter of a construction specialist. So I can tell that, okay, there's massive yeah. amount of time and work that goes into it, which people really don't see. Yes, it is very important. Uh, what I find with the younger generation is they're too afraid to make a mistake or too afraid of failure. Yeah. And I, I often tell them, you're just 20 years old. You know, there's nothing to fail. And if you don't fail, you will not learn. But what I find with this younger generation is that they all wanted to do everything perfectly. And they all think that career is a linear path. It's never a linear path. I started as a building services engineer. Then I did project management, design management, bid management, architectural um, engineering assistant. Mm -hmm. And through this journey, I found yeah. two things. What are my strengths and weaknesses? And secondly, how can I make a bigger impact of something bigger than myself? Yeah. So doing a job and earning money uh, should not be the focus of anyone's in the first 10 years of their life. What I tell when I mentor people is that focus on the knowledge and the wisdom. Knowledge is what you read from a book. Wisdom is converting knowledge into application and understanding and learning from it. You know, there's a difference. Um, and, uh, and be prepared to fail and understand your relationship with failure because that is very key as we grow in life. Our lives are changing, projects are changing, clients are changing. We really need to understand for each of us what failure means, what success means. We don't often ask ourselves this. We think that the societal standards, which is having a big car, a big house, a big bank account, some, I don't know, Chanel and Gucci bags and nice shoes and expensive watches, that definition of success and um status but that will only buy you material things it will not change you internally to a higher conscious human being True. and constantly I ask myself and I ask the people I mentor is that what is the purpose of your life yeah. and how can you serve something bigger than yourself because if we wake up every day and do the same thing that we have done before we're living in the past we are not redefining our future and we are not becoming we are not asking ourselves how can i um, how can i serve better yeah. you know and i think once as consultants we come to that level of understanding uh, with the level of service, you know, how can I serve my client better? How can I educate them better so they can make better conscious decisions? I think that is very key yeah. because people understands your intentions and vibrations. Yes. And if a person is true yeah. and honest, knowledge and impactful, make logical sense, have evidence to support them, clients will listen because they will see the value. Currently, the conversations are not value-driven. Yeah. That's one thing. We have to provide value. 
monetary, tangible, and intangible. And then second thing I say to the junior consultants is that we have to run design thinking and ideation sessions with our clients mm. because our clients might have a scope. They think they want a sustainable building, but their definition of sustainability might be completely different to what they actually need. Mm. Needing something and wanting something is different. And one of the work I do is run ideation and design thinking sessions with clients uh, both for net zero, both for sustainability water to really understand and align what is the sustainability objective and visions of these projects. Mm -hmm. So BIA headquarters became net zero and office of the future. The conversation did not start with that. The conversation started what BIA as a company wanted to be and what's their vision of bringing Zaha Hadid in. Mm -hmm. And the ideation and design thinking led to BIA as a company Zahadi as an architect, I worked for a different company at that time, Bura Happel, then to come up with ideas, how can we make this impactful for the employees, mm. you know? So it didn't start as we wanted to be more sustainable. It started as, yes, we have an intention to be sustainable. How can we make it happen? You know, so we as consultants have to take that journey. We have to take the client in a journey with us. You mentioned uh, working with the elements of nature. I, just out of curiosity, I'm going to ask you this. Uh, I know yes. we might be deviating from the journey, but tell no, me something. Okay. How does that influence? Because this is something I don't know. The I don't think the common man who hasn't studied this knows about it. How does that? Of course. You have, everybody knows that it affects you at an aura level, at a, you know, a vibration level and all of that. But tell me scientifically, when it comes to building, when it comes to planning in this sense, how is it affecting us and what people need to know about that? And how is it kind of even driving the conversation forward for climate change? You know? How can people do Thank you for the question. It's a very important question. So when we have a site, hmm. And the site has, for example, uh, site has an owner and the client wants to build a resort, for example, a well-being resort. Yeah. So each site has four elements. First is the earth. Yeah. Second is the water. Third is the air. And fourth is the fire. Right. When we talk about climate, we talk about the movement of the sun and the wind. Sun rises and sunsets changes winter to summer. Okay. Mm -hmm. Every from summer to winter, it changes by per degree. Mm -hmm. And the way the sun enters the space, that it makes an impact on the well-being and the health of the people. Right. Okay. That's mm -hmm. why they say on the sun, uh, south side to have longer shades or north side to have different window treatments because the sun enters a space in different angles in different time and parts of the day and the month and the season mm. so working with sun is extremely important second thing is earth is very important some earth has a um, lot of uh, water body underneath mm. so that treatment of that building should be different if there's water body underneath but many of the earth might not have water body underneath you know, mm -hmm. so understanding the earth is very important. Is it what kind of soil and rocks? What's the geological conditions? Mm -hmm. um, 
there's lots of wadis in Saudi. So understanding these wadis might be flooded during flash floods, but in summer they might be dry. So really understanding the hidden wadis, the geology is extremely important to connect with the earth and the services and to make the building more sustainable. The third thing is the air, the movement of air changes. In this part of the world, we have the winter season, we have the summer, and then we have the shoulder months. Shoulder months as the changing of the season months, when it's not necessarily winter or win summer. And then we have the shamal, the wind direction, which is the sandstorms. Mm-hmm. Now, each part of the UAE and each part of Saudi has a different wind pattern. When we look at wind studies, it will tell you the Northwest and Southwest. But as a consultant for us, it's really important to understand, is the wind blowing hot air or warm air or sea breeze? Mm. And when we understand that we can design our buildings to take into account of that sea breeze because the wind is bringing humidity. So we want to capture that into our uh, courtyards and our buildings. But if the wind is bringing dust, then we can create massing of the building in such a way that we slow down the winds entering the spaces of the boundary of our building. So the dust keeps on falling, but the air keeps on flowing through. That's what we want to do. So that's where the wind is very important, especially window treatments. Most people say, oh, don't open the window. I said, why not? Because in winter, you can really open the window. Mm-hmm. and use of natural ventilation certain parts of the time but in summer when it's really hot our building needs to breathe yeah. you know creating a building that doesn't breathe is not really sustainable mm-hmm. the other concept people don't understand which is thermal mass the old architecture of saudi arabia and uae um, and even the tents had a lot of thermal mass they were men uh, they had thick stones if you see the old buildings in the region, thick stones, which reduces the so- transmission of solar tra- uh, radiation from outside to inside. So if it's 500 millimeters or more, um, it helps keeping the building cool. Yeah, yeah. Now, the tents, the traditional tents had uh, animal skin. And the animal skin had a lot of layers as well that worked really well to keep the tents cool. Yes. Okay. So I talked about water, I talked about air, I talked about fire is also very important because fire talks about the heat, okay? Mm -hmm. There are parts in Saudi where it snows. There are parts in Saudi that it really gets cold. So you really need to understand, do you need to heat or cool the buildings? You know, we are so focused on cooling the buildings, but heating the buildings is also important. And you will understand uh, in some parts in UAE, we also need heatings, Mm. right? But the question is, do we use electricity to heat our buildings or do we use solar panels or do we use other thermal mass or other ways, passive ways of cooling the buildings? Um, So I always work with these four elements and what we call microclimate studies, which is understanding the air movement, the wind movement, understanding the massing of the buildings to bring air and wind in, um, and how shadowing, overshadowing uh, spaces works. A um, few years ago, I worked on Abu Dhabi on, on all these parks. Mm-hmm. Um, it was called Gadan Project. Mm-hmm. And that project is an amazing project where it looked at the outdoor thermal comfort. And there's a lots of spaces have been created with shading and shadow. Mm-hmm. It's very important when a human body is walking through shadow, um, the, the interaction of the heat and the sweating of the body. We, we work 
it's healthier for us, if I may say, because you must have seen living in this part of the world when you're working in walking in direct sunlight, it's yeah. more hotter. That's yeah. why you use an umbrella, right? Yeah. A layer is very important. Um, so these are very, there is a science behind it. Corbusier, Louis Icahn, these famous master architects were master of these. They knew it. They used it as part of their thinking process. But right now, um, many times these are getting separated from the architects. This should be part of the architect's thinking process. And many of the older architecture companies and many of the regional architecture companies, they, they also use this as part of their thinking process as well. Which is that one sustainability initiative that you think that comes to your mind that people, and by people, I generally mean people who don't have the knowledge about this can learn from. And what can people like me, people who are not architects, people who are not engineers, what can they do in their regular environments to kind of contribute to this narrative, you know? I think one of the biggest movement that's happening in US, UAE and globally is uh, more understanding of recycling. That's really positive. Yeah. Um, people are more conscious about circular economy, recycling, um, waste, separating the waste. This did not exist before. So I think that's very positive and we should continue doing that. The second thing I would say is that when we buy paints to paint our houses or to get some new coating then we really need to think about the smell of the paint. The more smelly the paint is, the cheaper it is. And that means it has more global warming potential and it has more VOC, which is a volatile organic compound, which is really bad for our health. We don't often know, we take it for granted that paints will smell. No, paint should not smell. If it's smelling, that means it has something harmful for your body. So I would really like anybody who's listening to the podcast, anybody who's buying any paints to paint their house and all that, please, be conscious, ask the questions and smell the pains. If it's smelling, there's something not right. The third thing I would say is that um, we have an idea in this part of the world that you really need to keep your bedroom temperature 16 degrees or 17 degrees to make it cool. Mm -hmm. That actually is harmful for our houses. The mm -hmm. correct bedroom and the overall room temperature should be 22 degrees centigrade because mm -hmm. If your apartment is much cooler and the apartment above you next to you is 22 or higher, there's a lot of condensation takes place in the ventilation system. And there can be um, things happening in the ventilation system, which is not kind of harmful for your health. So mm -hmm. keeping a constant temperature of 22 degrees is very important. The fourth thing I will say is that many people in this region suffer from allergies. The reason people suffer from allergies is that our ventilation system is not properly cleaned. It's not the responsibility of the owner or the building manager. If you're staying in an apartment, even if you're a tenant, you should take responsibility of your own health. Mm -hmm. So get a proper uh, cleaner to clean the entire ventilation system. And what they will do is that they will come in your apartment and take apart piece by piece the air conditioning system from inside the ductward, clean everything and put it back. Mm. There's lots of companies in UAE, they will come, they'll mm. just clean the top of the ventilation and a little bit of duct and they leave and they do a Hoover thing. That's not a proper cleaning. And you will find it, it takes three to four hours for a company to do that. Mm. 
-hmm. It took me 10 companies to find the right company to do that, by the way. And every three months, we need to clean our ventilation system because it absorbs, the filters absorbs a lot of dust, lot of organic compounds that needs to be cleaned. And if we don't do that, we are inhaling unhealthy air within our own buildings, mm -hmm. okay? So that's something, and I, I think it's, instead of paying a doctor 3,000 dirham, I rather pay my ventilation guy to clean my ductwork because it impacts my health, my family's health, everyone's health. So I think we can do simple things um, that's really essential. The other thing I find is that even if we have to do a short five-minute walk, we love to take our cars out. And I know people always complain it's too hot and all that. We have to make conscious decisions sometimes. Five minutes walk is okay if it's under the shade. Um, I just went to Rome and we had to walk like 10, 15 minutes and there was no shade because Rome is a cold country. They didn't even thought they will get heat, heat yeah. waves. So I think small conscious decisions is very important. Um, there is a lot of movement happening in GCC now of food production. People yes. are growing food in their balconies. And I think that's absolutely positive. Um, that really helps, you know, growing aquaponics is becoming a big thing. I really want to see more of the aquaponics and food productions happening. Yeah. Yeah. The last thing I will say is that I know in this region, we all love to live in big villas and have our swimming pools and beautiful gardens. But think of the gardening in a meaningful way. Instead of having 100% garden full of flowers that doesn't serve you, can we have 30% of flowers and 70% of local herbs? Like, for example, this region has regional rosemaries. And there's so many regional herbal plants that there is, which is green, which is beautiful. It can be part of your healing tea and your uh, food habit. But we don't always think of it that way. We think a garden should have these flowers and they should all be colorful, which is amazing. But I think if we are living in a region which is very water stretched, where we are bringing water from abroad to drink, uh, if you have a garden, it would be worth thinking consciously how to have a regenerative garden, which is some part of it has food production. Even the balconies are shaded so they can be used for food production. If you have a really um, shaded area, which is a bit uh, sh sh uh, shabby is not the word, right word, which is a bit watery and not dark you can even do mushroom production it doesn't have to be in a facility mushroom mm -hmm. is so nutritious so i think it's important to for us to start thinking in a regenerative way just because we have supermarkets in this country and it's full of food um, we often don't think of these things but there are other parts of the world especially in pandemic i know in us and others the supermarkets were not full of food we were blessed in UAE that our supermarkets were yes. full of food Very blessed, you know so i think the decisions we make it has an impact not just us the country it has an impact on someone sitting in brazil or spain mm. so yeah we're connected and <sighs> My last question to you is, first of all, you wrote the book. So tell me something about the process of writing that book. What did you go through? You told me about the journey. But I know as a writer, it's a massive task to even write a thesis. And then you're talking about a book. 
so it's it's definitely any any particular anecdotes and from the book any you know any one reason that you think why cities need to look at net zero now i i think you've already answered that with just in focus with the book so i'll i'll answer it in two ways first the process of writing and second the impact of the book and the process of writing i would say is that um it's important to be very clear on the intention and the purpose of the book. Very true, very true. That, yeah. That's very clear. Yes. So the book that myself and Langton Morris wrote came from a very clear intention and purpose. We want to create an action plan for city leaders and for non-architects and engineers. Anybody can take that action plan, which is completely downloadable at www.netzerocitybook.com that people can use to make decisions so it's a decision making it's a mind mapping action plan it doesn't say what you will get as a result but it shows the correct questions to ask in different stages there are other questions that can come but it's just a strategic way to take actions for the cities city officials anybody who doesn't know anything about sustainability but work for a government entity, public or private sector can create a roadmap. And then they can take this roadmap that we have in the book and create their own. That's absolutely fine. So the clear intention is very important. Yeah. Second part is that it's very important to understand who is the audience of the book. Yeah. For myself and Langdon, I have a very technical background. Langdon has a very professional background. And we are very clear that our, our, um, audience is people who knows a little bit and wants to know more mm. but wants to have some level of tools it's not a very academic book or a very technical book because consultants like me who wants a technical and academic book we can download things and read other you know books we don't need to read True. a book that gives a general idea so this book is for generalists to mm. come mm. to read and to identify what is their role in this journey. Mm. Okay, so it's very simple. Um, the, we were very disciplined. I was very disciplined because I had a four, four month old baby. So I woke up every morning 4am and I wrote the book four to seven. And then in the evenings when it's my evening, it's Langdon's daytime, we discussed. We were not perfectionists in any of things. Perfectionism mm. was not my or Langdon's goal. The idea was to getting the key messages. Right. So once we create the structure of the messaging and the information required, then we focused on the storytelling. We have 113 case studies in the book, 112 is positive and one is negative. There's a reason for having that mm -hmm. because to show people there's lots of good things happening mm -hmm. and we need to come together to make more good things happen. And we need to understand what is good and what is bad looks like. Mm -hmm. So that's the main idea. Um, you need a good thinking partner and writing partner. Langton was amazing on this. We were very good in thinking and writing partners. And we always kept a check on each other when each of us are going to nerdy on something, which often happens as an engineer, you know, yeah. you want to get. And the idea is to simplify things. Yes. You know? I think that's very important. So, so the whole idea of this book and everything is it's for generalists, it's for city leaders, it's for anybody who has an interest to understand, to implement, to use it for their teaching. It can be used as a teaching tool. It can be used with consultants, with their clients, and it can be used as a government level as well. Because 
globally, everybody wants to do it. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to get into net zero, but asking the question, where do I start? How do I start? Yeah. That gets tricky. Exactly. When do I start is not a problem. Where do I start and how, how do I start and what do I do? So that's the idea of the book. Thank you so much for taking time out for this because it's been a genuine pleasure, not just as a podcaster, but just as just a pleasure to even meet you and do this with you. Really, I'm glad uh, we could do this finally. Really, well, thank fun. you, Karishma. I really appreciate it, and I hope that whoever is listening to this, um, they it will benefit them in some way. It will make them think differently and have those conscious conversations with their um, friends, peers, or younger children. I would really like to see more younger people joining architecture, engineering, these kind of topics, um, climate science, science, scientists. There's so many ways. You don't have to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer to make a positive impact in the world. Um, Ecologists are in the biggest demands now anything that we do and archaeologists because all of the world um, we really have to look at how to make sustainable archaeological movements so really would encourage people to open their mind have those conscious conversations and just remember that whatever your decision is it has an impact either with your family with your neighbors with your city and globally And even though we might not link it and think, oh, we're just one person, then me recycling, how will that make a difference? But you recycling will make a huge difference because other 5 billion people are going to be thinking the same way. Yes, yes, absolutely. On that note, thank you so much once again. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, then do give us a follow and tune into our next episode as well. If you wish to watch the videos on YouTube, you can check them out at Karishma Connect and give us a follow on Instagram at Karishma Vallate. Thank you again.